Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of Weavy Myths Season 2. Weavy Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through play-by-post format. I'm your guest host, Ruben, filling in for Nathan. And joining me today is the artist formerly known as Mordai, Eric. Some call me Mordai. Uh, we will be joined by Colin a little bit later. We're all modestra- moderators, are administrators on Bithweavers, a play-by-post gaming website. And we're here to help you bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. If you would like to be part of the text chat, feel free to join us on Mythweavers Discord server every other Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, we're going to be talking about game pacing and timed events. After that, we'll open up the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else you want to know. All right, so we're going to start by talking about pacing and how to pace your game. To me, this is one of the more difficult tasks as a GM because really what you're trying to do is produce something that's exciting and interesting and catches the players and really hooks them and makes them want to keep coming back to play. It's challenging enough when you can look them in the eye and, and try and, and grab them with you know, interpersonal interaction. But when you're trying to do it over play-by-post, it's a little more challenging. Yeah, and a big part of that challenge is that play-by-post is asynchronous, meaning things don't always happen at the same time. And so when you've got a group of players and not all of them post at the same time or at the same rate, you're going to have trouble kind of keeping excitement up are kind of keeping the downbeats a little slower. Yes, when players post at their own pace, um, particularly if you have players, there's nothing wrong with this, and I really encourage the widest variety of players possible, but sometimes you get players that are posting from China and players that are posting from France and players that are posting from the East Coast of the U.S. and the West Coast of the U.S. in the same game. They're never, ever possibly going to post anywhere near the same time. Throw in the factor that you know some of them may post three times a day and some of them may post three times a week and you you have a recipe for a challenge where you have to wait for some players to post and that waiting can sometimes lead to the death spiral of a lull that just goes on and on and on because the person who you're waiting for to post didn't realize oh is my turn again and at the same rate you may have some people who can post from work and therefore can post two or three times a day in which case you start running into the issue that one player can begin dominating the situation or even start accelerating your pace just because they're posting so much more often and moving things forward while other people don't have the chance to do so. Right. In addition to the somewhat uh, hectic nature that that can cause, you can just get things out of sequence because by the time that the next person gets an opportunity to post, things have passed that they didn't expect to pass. And so their post kind of seems not in the right timeline. You have to to stitch it back together. And then there's also the fact that because we're writing over text, we don't have some of the tools that a lot of us GMs take for granted, like your voice and the tone of your voice, how loudly or softly you speak, or whether or not you're kind of trying to be creepy or if you're trying to be excited. Yeah, it's especially difficult to to convey any sort of real tension when – you post and the next person has as long as they want to consider exactly how they want to respond to it. Right. So those are mostly your kind of your biggest concerns and the biggest problems. Uh, So how do we go about starting to kind of solve these? Well, as a, as a GM myself, I like to start at the beginning, which is if I build plan my adventure correctly, plan in some of those high points and low points that I can, bring in the excitement and then have a little downtime that uh, people can, can simmer through and then you know, maybe ratchet it up again, depending on how long the adventure goes. You know, structuring it uh, from the planning process uh, helps me a lot when it comes to actually executing it. So it sounds a lot like you're talking about uh, structuring something similar to a television show or a play, which is normally known as the three-act structure or the five-act structure, which is... Something I'm betting all of us are actually already familiar with. If you watch an hour-long television show, you already kind of know how the five-act structure goes. The same thing if you've seen a play. Like any of us who have read Shakespeare know that it's generally structured in three acts. And they don't 
all have to be the same length or the same weight or the same importance, but it's the acts are more articulation of the parts of the action that you want to convey. First, you have to actually state what it is that's going on, identify the conflict. Then you have to play out the conflict and then resolve the conflict. And that's kind of the basic up and down motion of uh, you know, any sort of basic written story. Right. And if you go online and start researching three-act structure or five-act structure, you'll find a lot of resources. But kind of in brief, to take like three-act, act one is where you kind of do your setup. This is what a lot of us would call the plot hook. It's also where if you're starting the game, you introduce the characters and you kind of create an inciting incident or some move to action. This is kind of a, this is a section where you can let the people who are posting at different rates kind of post at different rates because it doesn't matter as much that you're kind of building momentum. So somebody posting a bit actually can help you start building that momentum up. Act one is, is an important part of bringing a new group together, particularly if it's new players, but even if it's just new characters with the same players, they need some time to meld, merge, become one. Uh, even if they're, uh, by the definition of how the, the story was put together, they already know each other. They don't really know each other because you didn't have that year or 10 years or decades or whatever of history. So you need to be able to, uh, to give them some time to, to, to make the sauce and become a, a team. But you got to be careful not to let that go on too long. That can be a, a common flaw in play-by-post is you don't know when to start Act 2. The answer is plan out Act 1 and know what your endpoint is so that you're ready to just drop it on the players and, and start the, the, the longest act. Yeah, and don't be afraid to kind of, kind of abort or jump out of Act 1 prematurely, especially if it feels like things are really starting to lag. The last thing you want to do is start a game or start an adventure and have people kind of start just meandering and posting less because nothing's going on. Yeah, even if the players don't know what you want them to do, you need to know what you want them to do so that you can be pulling them in or or pushing them out if it's the tavern, getting them out in the street and and doing something useful. Yeah, and what you want to pull them into is Act 2, which this is the long this is the longest section of the three acts. This is where you start introducing obstacles and you start building tension and you start building excitement by kind of upping the stakes and upping the stakes and upping the stakes until you kind of get to the midpoint, which is where you can set one of your big set piece encounters. This is one of your big blowout battles or big social confrontation. Right. And I think what mainly differentiates the three act from the five act is, is that big point, the, part at which we now start to taper off towards the uh, the resolution, the final resolution of the story, or is it just a uh, a base camp on the way to higher heights on the mountain? Right. Uh, so at this point in the adventure too, this might be where you start needing to kind of pull the reins of your fast posters in and start putting the spurs to your slower posters. Yes, and, and I find it's helpful to try and start that a little earlier, maybe before we're quite out of Act 1, um, because it can create kind of a gap, a dichotomy between the party where um, you have a group that's on the slower side and they start to work together as a subgroup and the group that's on the faster side starts to work together as a subgroup uh, and they never actually integrate with each other. I wouldn't say I try to weed them out, but the more I can get that aligned up front, the more the action will start to make sense to them. Right. Because, I mean, the last thing you want to do, especially when you're starting to build tension, is have one group that's trying to blow through it as fast as they can, and then one group that's kind of lagging behind just because they're not posting as often. Right. Uh, We talked about upfront expectations and setting them in previous episodes, but I'll reiterate it here. It's important to tell your players kind of what the posting rate is that you're expecting and what the kind of storytelling is that you're going to be doing. Because if your storytelling is about the journey and the characters and the, I don't want to say role playing of it, but just the, the, the epic itself is the excitement and not the completion of the epic. Then you need players who are going to write with that kind of structure in mind. But if you're running a a one shot adventure where you're going to go dungeon crawling and, and kill some things and take their stuff, maybe a little faster works out better. Yeah, for sure. And so once you get the kind of rising action done, you've got them up to the peak and you've got this big thing of excitement, you need to move into Act 3, 
which is where you start the descending action. And you start kind of wrapping up the threads. If they've been knocking on doors, trying to find out where Varen Bond badass is gone, uh, this is where they find out where he's gone, and now they're going to track him down and deal with him. Precisely. And once you're done with him, then you know, if that's the end of the adventure, there's going to be a certain amount of wrapping up that needs to be done. You don't want to just cut it off and say, congratulations, you, you, uh, you beat him. Here's your 10,000 experience. Have a nice day. You really need to wrap it up in a, a way that makes the characters potentially want to go on another adventure together. Uh, right. Because there's, no, there's no reason why an adventure that was designed as a, a short three-act down, up the mountain, back down, there are other mountains to climb. Why not? Yeah. This is also where you start seeding in plot hooks for your next adventure. And you don't have to make them obvious either. You can just kind of give hints about something that's bigger going on. I personally like to uh, to just throw out a few things and, and not necessarily do anything with them earlier in the adventure because then you can go back and pick up something that, you know, they noticed that and they, they kind of followed it and it was interesting to them. You have more time to let it work its way into their consciousness uh, rather than having to start the act one process from the, the hooking and reeling uh, back from the beginning again. Act three is also where I like to come back to some of the characters I introduced in act one. So maybe if the guy gave him a quest, maybe they have to go back to him, kind of catch up with things. And you can also put another big blowout encounter kind of towards the front of act three. And sometimes that's where you want to put your biggest kind of toughest set piece encounter is kind of the very start of act three. Right. Um, Because really act three is started when you, aren't expanding the story anymore, but you're contracting it. You're finishing off plot threads. You're, you're wrapping things up. And it's quite possible that if you have multiple things going on, it's going to take some level of effort to get from the end of act two, where you've, uh, where you've established yourselves as uh, successfully climbing the mountain to actually finishing off the guy who instigated you to go off uh, uh, on this adventure in the beginning, first place. Right. And that's kind of like the basics of the three-act structure. If you want to get fancier or kind of break it down a little bit more, there's also a five-act structure, which is a lot like the three-act structure, but they just kind of break things up a bit more. Yeah, and from the beginning to the end, the the idea of climbing the mountain and, and coming back down still applies. You've got your act one, which is getting the gang together and something inspires them to go off on the adventure. This is where you drop your plot hooks. This is where you... Uh, you hook them in. And then act two is that initial climb up the mountain. You've got some obstacles. You have, uh, you have a generally good idea of uh, what's going on. And then you hit him with act three, where you've got a big twist, a crisis, something that really drives home um, the need or makes the characters grow in some way uh, where they've got to turn from just doing their own thing to now the focus is on, uh, something that has to get done because they're the only ones who can do it. Right. And then act four is where you start your following action. And they basically add up the, they kind of break the uh, third act up, the three act of the third act up into act four and act five. Act four is where you start your uh, following action. Uh, I like to put my really big blowout battles or confrontations at kind of the end of act four. That's about where it feels kind of, the best. And this is, if I'm kind of really planning something, this is the big confrontation I spend the most amount of attention on. This is the one where I pull out all the stops, I'll throw in extra rules, anything like that. This is going to be the one fight you really want them to remember. Yeah, and I kind of distinguish the the five-act from the three-act somewhat, um, I'm going to use an analogy from Final Fantasy, if you will, but the act four is where you've got the airship and you're free to go do what you want to go do, um, but you know that we got to get it done because Baron von Badass is lingering out there, and uh, we got to go. We got to go finish him. Oh man, the act where you get the airship—that's totally a good analogy. Except for me, the moment I get my airship is where I start ignoring the main quest and start doing every other side quest instead. Well, that goes back to our conversation we had about the the players who want to blow through the adventure and the players who. Are, are more about the journey. Uh, I'm certainly with you that I'm going to, I'm going to go take 
my airship and uh, go explore the 50 million corners of the planet. But there are some players who say, okay, now I got the airship so I can go right to his headquarters and punch him in the face until he goes down. Okay. If that's what your group wants to do, more power to you. So what do we do if that uh, we have one group, but half the players want to go do all the side quests and half the players just want to go punch the villain in the face? Well, personally, I like to, at that point, in, introduce that the villain is really stronger than you think, and you go try and punch him in the face, and he, he sends you packing. Um, but that happens in plenty of uh, examples in the genre where it's too soon to confront the villain. You need to be stronger or do something else or meet somebody that, that gives you the, the magic epic MacGuffin that will allow you to break through his uh, final defenses. Um, you know, that type of... Uh, Come back when you're stronger. And that's a really good way to kind of deal with it if you want to kind of expand the game out farther. Uh, Another way I've done is I will have the villain make a very devastating attack or make a very devastating move on something very important to the players to impress upon them that, no, you really can't go do all the side quests. You got to deal with them now. And that's a way you can kind of do it if you want to speed the game up. Right. I mean, if you have a super mega villain, he's not just going to sit there and rest in his super mega headquarters and wait for the heroes to come slay him. Uh, He may just well want to watch the world burn and he's going to start with your hometowns just because. And then you can always more or less have the airship break down. Or in other words, the the easy way they thought they had to the villain complicated again. Ooh, Final Fantasy VI. Yeah, actually... Now that I think about it, Final Fantasy, they all have great examples of act structures. Actually, I think most video games actually have a really good example of that. Yeah, you want to know how to pace a game? Start looking at video games. The good ones, mind you. Oh, yeah, don't look at the tap. Well, who looks at bad video? So, um, we, oh, go ahead. No, no, wasn't worth saying. Carry on. So that's basically how you can set up the skeleton of your adventure and kind of set yourself up for success. But there's... Once you kind of start using it and you start dealing with this act structure, you're still going to have problems. And here's a kind of a, a couple of ways you can troubleshoot it. The first problem I found is, like we talked about before, some of your posters are very frequent. They will post very often, and they have a habit of speeding things up. So what can we do to kind of deal with them? Well, personally, I always try and play to the strengths of my players. If they're good at posting frequently... I want that energy. I want them to feel like they can have fun in the game and and do what they want. And I want them to help me make the game better. So if I can reach out to them and say, hey, can you embellish what's going on in this scene? I mean, here's roughly what I'm going after, but if you want to put on some, some drapes and some curtains on this window... I would be glad to have you put those drapes and the curtains on the window because that means I can go focus on the, the bits and pieces that are the focus of the scene. But if you round it out for me, it'll just make it all that more exciting and real for everyone else. Another thing I've done is actually handed over an NPC or two to my most frequent posters and ask them like, all right, if you, if it's not appropriate for your character to say something, why not jump in as the NPC instead? Sort of give them an extra outlet to keep writing and kind of keep adding the scene without necessarily moving the actual plot forward that quickly. And the other I mean, thing that you can do is uh, is encourage them to encourage the other players. Just because uh, they're posting frequently doesn't mean that they uh, are somehow different or better than any of the other players in the group. But they have the power of being a player over the GM. It's very easy to ignore a GM post saying, hey, could you guys post a couple more times? Hey, we're, we're trying to move this along. But if the other players are asking for it, it's a different voice. It's, a, it's more compelling in some ways because it's part of your team. Yeah, I... Worst comes to worst, you can also just talk to them out of game and go, hey, I love your enthusiasm. Can you maybe rein it in a little bit? And instead of doing a lot of frequent posts, maybe do just do one kind of more detailed post. I mean, I don't like doing it, but it's something you can do if the problem gets bad. Yeah, that's why, as I said early on, I like to, to ferret that out in Act 1 if at all possible so we can balance out those posting rates and okay, maybe it means we need to, to tweak the player group a little bit to, to bring somebody different in, or maybe someone's just not having quite the right level of fun and, and needs to be suggested to go find some uh, some better opportunities. And those are hard decisions to make as a GM. 
but it can make your game go more smoothly as long as you can do it in a nice, community-friendly, responsible way. Right. Always be polite. Uh, the other thing you can do is you can set up an out-of-sequence kind of in-character open role-play thread. We've talked about these in other previous episodes, but basically set up another thread that's not plot relevant, but it gives the more frequent posters a place to kind of keep posting and role-playing without necessarily affecting the pace and kind of building tension of your actual plot thread. Absolutely. And I love to set these in the past of the characters, particularly ones where the characters had some interactions before, because then you can play out those interactions and it helps make the characters feel more real as you're playing the here and now thread too. Right. In in a longer running game, I really like setting up those threads as the end of the last adventure. That kind of gives a bit more immediacy but it's still not affecting something. Well, it's not overly affecting something that's happening now. Yeah, obviously you have to make sure that they don't do something that's going to cause you to retcon your adventure, but overall... Although, although if they do it good enough, I've actually awarded things in character and in-game for stuff they wrote in the past thread. Uh, it works, works better in something like Fate than it does in other systems. Yeah, tr- trying to retcon that uh, plus five holy adventure into the adventure... Uh, maybe a little more challenging than you want to do. Yeah, but it's pretty easy just to stack on another free invoke on an aspect. So what about the uh, opposite problem? What about the guys who don't post very often and who are maybe lagging behind? Well, setting expectations up front is important here. If you have a minimum posting rate, you need to enforce it for the good of the rest of the group. It's, as I said, it's one of those hard jobs that the GM has to do, but you need to stay, stay stuck to your guns. I asked for a post every other day. I am seeing a post every six days from you. It's just not supporting the game. It, it's, it's taking it out on the rest of your team. Uh, please step it up. If not, uh, I'm going to need to make a change. Yeah, and you need to be really upfront about what you're acquiring when you start the game and when you're advertising. I mean, this is not something you can drop on people after the game starts. You have to be very, very clear about this is what I require when when you start. So when somebody does lag behind and you ask them to pick it up, you could point to that and go, look, this is what I asked for. You're not meeting what I asked for. Yep. Absolutely don't ever be arbitrary as the GM. There's enough places in the game where you're going to have to make judgment calls and those are a lot easier to make stick if you're not willy-nilly about every other decision. Right, and, you know, be nice about it, too. You don't have to be, you know, a dick about it or anything. Like, try to be understanding and realize that maybe sometimes they um, there's a good reason they're not posting for that amount of time. Maybe they're sick or they've got relatives in town or something like that. Make sure that this isn't a chronic thing, and it's or make sure it's not a chronic thing. Right. Try and ask... And if it is kind of temporary, if this is just like a temporary slowdown or a temporary absence, it's kind of a good idea to either, one, just let the character go quiet a little bit, especially if they're like, hey, I'm out of town for the weekend. A lot of times it wouldn't even matter, but hey, I'm on vacation for a week. Maybe for that week, the character's just a little quiet. Yep. It's, it's easy enough to be a wallflower as long as that's reasonable for the character. If they were the party leader, it's a little more challenging. Then you might have to do something more dramatic, like NPC them for a bit. Uh, that's more challenging because it requires you to somehow remain true to the character while knowing what the consequences of any of the character's actions will be. Right. Uh, if you're Especially if you're in like Act 2, Act 3, and you're trying to build tension, your other option would be temporarily take them out. Like not permanently or not too severely, but maybe knock them out and maybe force the rest of the party to deal without this character for just a short amount of time. I mean, obviously do this with the other, the player's permission, but that's another option. Yeah. In particular, um, you know, if you've got combat heavy sequences, this can be a real challenge uh, because it's a little hard, even if you ask them for a a script or kind of, these are the standard actions that I would take. Sometimes things just, take a turn in combat that you didn't expect it's you know no battle plan ever meets the enemy and survives so uh, ask them if there's another player character that would be able to take on you know the reins there Uh, that can help balance things out and keep things moving uh and we actually some of the advice we gave back when we were talking about missing players and 
you can use those uh, that advice temporarily to kind of fill the gap. It's important to have that communication too. If if you know that there's going to be an absence, I mean, as a GM, tell your players when you're going to be absent, but have the same expectation on the players that the players will inform you in advance before they're going to be gone for two weeks on vacation. Vacation's great. Everyone deserves a vacation, but I had planned this particular sequence to kind of kick off now, and it's not going to work so well if we are sitting around waiting for the paladin to uh, get on his high horse and lead us off on our valiant quest to victory. Right. And it just goes down. Like a lot of these problems just solved by communication. Just keep the lines of communication open. Uh, I think we've said that so many times that I, we we should probably make a drinking game out of it at this point, but it can't be overstated. Communication is what we're about. That's the whole point of the game is we're communicating with each other to have fun. So talk. Yeah. Uh, And as we mentioned, be very honest about what your posting rate is going to be when you make the ad. And don't even be a, don't be afraid to enforce it either. Like if you're going to request it, enforce it. Do it nicely, but enforce it. Right. You know, we've talked about in previous uh, episodes, we've talked about pre-game role-playing. This can actually be a very valuable tool to try and figure out how fast people actually post. Uh, you're dealing with a little bit of the initial game enthusiasm that may cause the posting rates to be higher artificially than they would be otherwise. But proportionally, I think, in general, you're going to see that the, the people who are faster posters are, fast, are posting faster just as much as the people who are slower posters are posting faster. And so if there's a gap there, you should find it relatively early on. That gives you an opportunity to address it before it becomes an actual issue in Act 2. Absolutely. And then once you've been on the weave a bit longer and you've had a few games under your belt, eventually a lot of us will start kind of keeping an informal Rolodex of players. And one of the ways I organize my Rolodex is by posting rate. And so if I'm going to start a new game and I have like 30 players I know and that are good, I'll think about how fast I want the game to move and maybe invite the players I know that post at that rate. That's a great tool. I've used it myself, mostly by genre, but also by posting rate. There are, there are players who I know I can count on to deliver a high-quality post once a day. I almost find myself not playing with them as much now because my posting rates are a little lower, but um, I know that if I've got a, a one-shot game or something where I want to play something out early on or, or, or try some new ideas, I can reach out to those players and they'll be available right away. The Discord can be another good resource uh, for, for players with relatively fast posting rates because they're on here and chatting. Absolutely. A uh, couple other concerns. We talked a lot about building tension and about how you don't have a voice or a audio voice. Uh, a couple things you can do to kind of still build tension. One thing I've done is if I find a piece of music I think is particularly appropriate on YouTube... I'll post a link to that in the thread and say, this is kind of the theme music. I love using music. Uh, there's number, any number of great resources on the web. Uh, one I particularly use a lot is Jamendo, which is a French run uh, indie oh. music site. All of the music that's on there is posted uh, such that you can just direct any of your players to go find any of the tracks. You know, as long as you're not using it for commercial purposes, you know, it's out there and, and, uh, you can have a blast with uh, all sorts of different genres of music, uh, people who are just trying to get their stuff out there to be listened to and uh, hopefully someday make a buck or two. Oh, uh, you should throw a link to that in the Discord. Indeed, I will. Uh, and I will plug one of my favorites, and this is one I use in my tabletop groups as well, uh, Tabletop Audio. It's just tabletopaudio.com. These are loopable 10-minute audio ambiences. And... They've got some for almost everything. It's really, really great. He's fantastic. Uh, I've used him for years. He's got a Patreon, so if you really like it, maybe consider kicking in something there. Um, yeah, mostly there's a lot of really, really good online audio options that are royalty-free, and they can really enhance kind of the feel. Uh, the other thing you can do is get vivid with your descriptions, obviously. Uh, I've also, once uh, at a few points, will use different fonts and different colors of text to kind of indicate things. That's a good way to substitute for your voice. Yep. Another thing you can do is use pictures. Again, royalty-free 
made available for public use or you own the picture, it's yours. Those can be great resources because the picture does tell a thousand words. Not that words aren't important, but a different way of looking at it. And if you find a picture online, just because you found it online doesn't mean it's free to use. And if you do pull something off of like DeviantArt, at bare minimum, please credit the artist. Yeah. I mean, how many times have we seen uh, Elwood's pictures around the weave that we've had to uh, politely remind people that those are copyrighted? Yeah. Um, there are plenty of really great uh, stock photo sites out there. Uh, I personally use Adobe Stock, but that's because I'm already in everything else Adobe. So uh, I think that covers most of actual pacing. Do we want to talk about how to do timed events? Well, timed events are a great tool for pacing, especially when you really want to bring in the tension and, and make it count. Uh, it's used so often in books, movies, television shows, I can't even can't even possibly give you, you know, a comprehensive list of examples, but anything from reality television shows like The Apprentice or game shows or, or 24, if you're looking for life-changing drama, there's plenty of examples out there for where timed events are a great challenge. Something has to be done. It has to be done at a certain time or else. Uh, a lot of episodes of a Giver had that kind of element to them. James Bond. Mm. Um, speed. Mission Impossible. Oh, I can I can see the intro now. Dun 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 dun. Um, yeah, no. Type type events are great. Uh, they're especially great when you put them in the second, third, fourth acts. It's a way to really crank up the tension. Yeah. But again, play-by-post is a completely different animal than, say, tabletop. Tabletop, you can get out your stopwatch and say, you've got 20 minutes to finish this challenge. Go. Play-by-post, 20 minutes. Probably no one's even on in 20 minutes unless you're really lucky. Right, and there's no way to measure it if they are. So uh, you just have to change up how you're measuring time. So one thing you do is number of posts. You can say you have to solve this challenge in six posts. Yes. Again, you got to make sure that your fast posters aren't frittering away the entire challenge before anyone else has a chance to uh, to post. But you know, a number of post mechanisms is good. Uh, you can also set the particular parameters of the challenge such that you have a certain number of attempts to do various things. We need to reset the programming on this T-800 before it, the system comes completely online because then it's just going to kill us. Right. And Well, and when you're doing that, it's important to remember, talking may be a free action, but it doesn't mean people can talk back and forth forever. Make sure you're kind of keeping the uh, like conversation focused. Don't let people get too wordy. Um, you know, and if they do, pop in a post. You've spent the last 30 seconds in conversation. The timer just clicked down 30 seconds. Right. Time and tide wait for no man. And, and you know, if it's a social type situation where you're trying to, uh, say, solve a mystery or accomplish some diplomatic action or convince somebody of your cause, there's only so many people you can talk to. Eventually, they're going to not want to talk to you anymore. Uh, so there's a natural limit there. Right. Uh, and when you're setting these challenges up, tension is good. Make sure everyone has a way to contribute to that challenge. Um, you can even go so far to kind of make sure that some parts can only be solved by one or two characters. Like maybe there's an alchemical bomb going off in the courtyard of the castle. And so you need the strong guy to lift the portcullis and then you need the thief to disarm the bomb. And then you need, like, the wizard to cast a spell. Absolutely. Now, Nathan's uh, famous rule of three applies here. You know, that's normally talking about clues. But never make one person the indispensable resource for the game. Because if that one person suddenly decides to ghost on you, you just uh, had your adventure completely compromised. Always have a couple ways of getting things done. Right. Particularly important because... Maybe you have a general idea of how you think it should be done, but if the players don't think of that or they get stuck somewhere, proposing alternatives can help break the ice and keep the adventure moving forward. Right. I actually think I was the one hammering on the rule of three. Really? I, I, it's, it's been hammered enough that I remember it at least. So I think we've done some good. 
that it was both of us. It's probably both of us. Um, yeah, the thing about doing these kind of like focused ways to solve a problem gives every character a chance to shine. And sometimes when they're sending these up, if I think a player hasn't had a chance to really shine yet, I'll design one of these problems to be solved by them. Not exclusively by them, but most easily by them. And if they're a slower poster, I also really try and start that challenge when they're most likely to post. Yep, you definitely can, uh, once you know the patterns of your players, gear things to lob the softball at the uh, the player you think is most likely to uh, take a swing. And, you know, if they miss, don't worry about it. And that is an important aspect of the game. Is never put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, just because you have a plan for what happens after the players succeed, they might not succeed. So you need to have a plan for handling their failure as well. Um, obviously, if the timed event is the climax of the whole adventure, then the consequences are going to be dire. But if you have more game plan, then you can use the consequences to drive even more tension and danger into the later action. Like, oh, Mr. Bad was going to his helicopter and we were trying to cut him off, but he got there first. So now he's got a three-hour head start to enable his doomsday mechanism. Right. Uh, and this brings up an important point. You should only be doing these kind of timed actions when both success and failure are interesting. If you can't think of a really interesting thing that happens if they fail, then maybe you shouldn't be making this a timed action or this important. Uh, further to that, even in like situations like this, so we know even failure is going to be interesting, I do like to build in a few breakpoints uh, just kind of a few chances where the heroes can recover and maybe get another shot at things. You don't have to do many, but maybe give them one. It's more or less a get-out-of-jail-free card. But build those in there, too. Like the extra rocket booster on your go-kart that will allow you to uh, make a dramatic catch-up. Right, or if they cut the wrong wire on the bomb, maybe it just starts going faster instead of just blowing up. So one thing to consider... In a tabletop, when we set up these situations and we set up the stopwatch for 20 minutes, players are rushed and they're going to make kind of maybe some bad decisions. In play-by-post, even if you're setting this up as dire, people can still sit and stare at the screen for two hours thinking what to do. So you can either kind of get stuck in analysis paralysis or kind of overthinking things. Right. And so that's the enforcing the timing um as we discussed earlier, is, is kind of critical to avoiding that type of analysis paralysis. Um, but if you have NPCs involved, maybe you can make them um, wanting to rush to conclusions, jump to the jump to the end because, oh, we're going to run out of time. And so that simple prompt kind of involuntarily forces the players to defend the other side of the coin and say, oh, no, you know, we can't do that. We need to think about it a little bit more. But you're at least having a dialogue now rather than just internalizing. Right. Got any other uh, thoughts, Eric? I have seen players occasionally try to rush things in a time challenge in play-by-post, which I thought was rather interesting, trying to, trying to get it all done in one post. You can still use the rest of your GM toolkit the same way you would in any other situation. Um, you can toss out extra clues or assistance if you need to, if you think the players are going down the wrong road just because they're, they're in a hurry to complete. Oh, you know, one thing I'll mention, in play-by-post, riddles aren't nearly as much of a problem as they are in tabletop, just because Google is a thing and a player is eventually going to Google it. Yes, and there is almost nothing new under the sun. It will be very hard for you to come up with a challenge that they couldn't Google. And if you do, it's probably fairly complicated to the point where they're not going to be able to get it without a substantial number of hints. Right. Oh, one thing I've also done is every once in a while, I'll actually make an image of a clock. And every time I do a GM post, I'll post that clock image advanced. I actually found that works fantastically for ratcheting up tension. I'm going to have to steal that idea because that sounds great. Uh, you have an illustrator? I can give you my illustrator template. I do not have illustrator. I'm a poor Inkscape man. Oh, well, I still love you anyway. I know you do. All right. This week, the game of the week is Final Fantasy Vessels of Beyond by Agent D. It is a Final Fantasy D6 game that will be closing April 15th. 
So if you're going to make an application, do it soon. Uh, so Vessels of the Beyond is set in the mystical world of Yarazua, and I probably killed the pronunciation there, uh, using Final Fantasy D6. I am not personally experienced with the system, but it looks pretty good to my eye, and it is free, and he has linked it in his advertisement. Uh, and speaking of the advertisement, this thing is beautiful. This is probably one of the prettiest advertisements I've seen for a game. Anyway, on the mystical world of Yarazua, deep troubles brew and ancient mysteries lie on the cusp of rediscovery in the wild heart. A once proud empire shattered into tiny feeding realms, little is truly known about what comes, what has been boiling beneath the surface. On one provincial day, a birthday ball for a promising heiress commences. Smiles, joy, and jest sparkle at a lovely apogee of display in days most regarded as optimistic. But soon that world end, and time would catch up with the sleeping count- country, the lounging region, the world with its eyes sealed shut. Soon the people would pray that Yarazua itself might survive what loomed on the horizon. HD isn't sure how many players he'll be accepting. In his own words, I'm keeping my options open. He's looking for a team that integrates well together. The whole of a team and the corresponding saga that can be told is greater than the sum of its parts. Final Fantasy Vessels Beyond closes for applications on April 15th, so be sure to get those applications in quickly. Kupo! Kupo! And I will be posting a link to the advertisement in the Discord. All right. So, uh, moving along, we're now going to open things up to the question and answer period. So, if you have questions, go ahead and ask us. We're kind of answering questions about anything. Uh, but before that... Obviously, right, we, won't, we won't answer any questions about Nathan's love life. Uh, yeah, our dirty questions or, you know, anything against the rules of use and all that. But before that, Mordai, what's making you happy this week? Well, it's, as I said, been a busy week for the family, but uh, my son's soccer team, which I coach, had their first game today and a 3-0 victory. So Capri Sun for everyone. And as I mentioned in the pre-show, uh, my daughter sang the role of Mrs. Potts in the school's performance of Beauty and the Beast Jr. She really knocked it out of the park. So we're, we're happy about that one as well. It's been a good week. Awesome. Mrs. Potts is the one that sings Beauty and the Beast, right? Exactly. So she had the title song and was really, really, uh, really good at that in particular. But the rest of it was good as well. The girl who sang Belle, though, was phenomenal. I've never heard sound like this out of a sixth grade girl before, out of a sixth grader at all before. So uh, hats off to her. Hope that she has all sorts of opportunities to go enjoy the world of theater and music here in the near future. Awesome. And your daughter following up Angela Lansbury can't be easy. Uh, as for me, uh, well, I got a new keyboard. I think Nathan and Chimi eventually wore me down. I actually picked up a mechanical keyboard, and I'm really, really happy with it. Clicky, I clicky, clicky, it. clicky, clicky. Yeah, and you guys probably even heard some of that on the podcast today, but I like it. I'm kind of converted. That, and I visited my uh, family last weekend. Got to see my niece and nephew, and Introduced them to a few more board games. Uh, particularly, they loved uh, Ticket to Ride First Journey, which is a great little board game for younger kids. Yes. And now, more questions. If you want to know what you want to ask. Oh, that was terrible. I should probably cut that, Nate. I don't know. I think that was probably the highlight of Act 4. Ah, well, we're in Act 4. So, yeah, questions big and small. Oh, my best accent. Oh, man. Um... I'd like to think I do a fair number well. I probably don't. But I have this weird sort of moose and squirrel kind of vaguely Russian sort of accent that I use for some women sometime that kind of works well. Well, my French accent is very good, really. I come from France. Um, Well, until Val was here, I kind of said I did a pretty good Scottish, but I guess my Scottish sucks. Oh, so Finrear Loki-son asks... Where do you start when it comes to a story for a game? The end, the third part, the beginning? That could be the subject of an entire episode. And Yeah, actually, we should throw that in the notes, but give a brief one, Eric. I always start from the end and work backwards to the beginning, except when I start from the beginning and work backwards to the, and forwards to the end. And contrary-wise, I occasionally start in the middle. 
but it really is where inspiration strikes me and where I can build the story out from. I really want something that inspires the players to do something new, something they haven't done before. Sometimes that means, of course, that I'll take a trope, a, a, a pre-built story idea, and turn it on its head or twist it to the side a little bit, make it so that they can't just do the same things that they always do. But in general, I start at the end. And my wife says that's because I never finish anything, uh, but I always aspire. Okay, now the mic's on. Uh, I personally, uh, weirdly, I start either with an NPC or I start with a scene. Either I'll have in mind a really cool, kind of awesome scene I want to happen, and I'll kind of work it around that, or I have a really cool NPC I want them to meet. Usually scenes mean I'll start more toward the end or the middle, whereas NPCs usually mean I start toward the front. But yeah, like you, I kind of just go with whatever really strikes my inspiration. You want to read the next question, Eric? Sure, I have to wait for background noise to die down a little bit. So the next question comes to us from... Dingmamon, who said, if you had to choose a game system which you would be forced to live in for one year, what system would it be and why? Star Trek. Oh, Star Trek would be a good choice because everyone is so well off. Well, everyone's well off, and B, their medical tech is high enough that I'm betting they could like solve all my medical problems almost instantly. That would be awesome. They also probably have a pill that would like let me instantly lose 20 pounds. Yeah, yeah, definitely, Um yeah, the, the whole uh, give a pill to solve kidney problems, I could go for that one. Of course, Synthol. I'd also have to live with Synthol. Um, Just for a year. Yeah, well, I think it also depends. Do I get to take everything back with me after the year or not? I could even make an argument for jumping into a D&D universe for a year. Dude, restoration spell. Yeah, restoration. Hell, cure disease is only third level. And I know enough about the worlds. I bet if I just started praying to some weird deity, I could probably get some clerical power. That is, if you weren't killed by a house cat first. <laughs> oh, I'm betting I'm not a first. If I'm getting sucked somewhere, I'm betting I'm a PC. I know where I don't go. I don't go to Shadowrun. Definitely don't go to Paranoia. Or Deadlands. Yeah, that's probably a bad bet, even though I love it. Call of Cthulhu is right out. I'm trying to think of other good ones. Oh, you know what? Actually, I would totally jump into Mutants and Masterminds. Freedom City is a pretty cool setting. How about Star Wars? I don't know. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not a Jedi, so I think that takes a lot of the fun out of it. Yeah, I just want to fly ships fast. Well, you can do that in Star Trek. And you can do it in the holodeck, so there's no chance to get hurt. All right, so Nathan, our dear absent leader, asks, What are some interesting cursed items you come across while gaming? Oh, man. The text chat points out that their dice are cursed. <laughs> my dice are only cursed with them GM if I'm a player they roll pretty well but if I'm a GM I roll multiple ones yeah it's hard to ratchet up the tension when your NPCs keep falling on their swords are you kidding I ran a game that actually had a Tarrasque in it it was the big final boss the Tarrasque never hit what the highest number I rolled all night was a 5 well yeah and all night only takes a few rounds so yeah this was back in the 3-5 days uh, well let's see cursed items well, they're not necessarily cursed items, but one of the things I, I run in most of my games is a shop called Honest Bob's. Because when he asked me to come up for NPC names on the spot, they're called Bob. But Honest Bob's was this weird general store that shows up in almost every city. And Honest Bob is kind of this half-rate, cut-rate sort of merchant. He buys a lot of his goods from, like, wizard schools. He buys their second runs, and they screwed up on enchanting. And one of the things he always has in every Honest Bob's is the 50 gold ring barrel. In the 50 gold ring barrel, I actually have a, D1, a D1000 chart. has magic rings for 50 gold, but they do weird things. Like one of them turns you invisible, but not your clothes. The other one turns your clothes invisible, but not you. One makes you uh, grow a monkey tail. One made it so you learned goblin, but could only speak goblin so it was a bunch of weird random weird quirky magic items that weren't exactly cursed but they you kind of had to be really clever to kind of use them well uh yeah i still have that d1000 chart somewhere but do i and he had he had other things like honest bob's is the kind of place even if you're looking for a magic item i would give you the magic item and you could buy it from him but i would roll and give it some sort of flaw wait there's a training spaces reboot i didn't even know what that is 
that's like reality TV. So no. Oh yeah, Nathan asks if we're going to watch the new Trading Spaces reboot. <laughs> Evidently, we don't even know what that is. Oh, I've seen enough of it to know that I don't need to see the reboot. Uh, I do like this old house, though. This old house is a great show. Yeah, I mean, because it doesn't involve fake competition. Yeah. You know, the one reality TV show I do like is uh, the um, the one with Gordon Ramsay, but it's all the kids, because he's actually kind of nice to the kids. I don't know what it's called, though. Uh, yeah, Digmamon. I'll try and dig around for my, uh, my chart and see if I can find it. Uh, it may have... The problem is I wrote it back when dot matrix printers were a thing. And so I'm not sure I still have a digital copy of it. So I'll have to transcribe it if I can find it somewhere. What's brown and sounds like a bell. Um, I don't know. Dung. Oh, you're fired. Fired. Hey, I say it works for Monty Python. <laughs> All right. Well, here's one for you, Eric. Favorite starship. Wow. You have, I have to pick one. Yep. Dang. Or rather, a magical, mystical genie comes to you and gives you a starship. What starship do you want? I want the original starship from Battlestar Galactica. A rebel choice. I like it. I think I would have to go with the Defiant. I always did like the Defiant. Yeah, that's, a, that's another excellent choice as well. Uh, so why the original Battlestar Galactica? Um, well, it's probably excessive nostalgia, but um, the the idea of a self-contained wanderer ship, that was really my first experience with it. So, um, And I, I just thought the Cylons were really cool looking, too. Uh, oh, the original Cylons? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they look dope. I mean, what else? Uh, my wife suggests that the starship that she wants the most is the TARDIS. Oh, I feel dumb now. I should have picked the TARDIS. Well, it doesn't help that I don't even really think of it as a spaceship. Actually, yeah, I'm going to exclude that. That is not a spaceship. It is a, well, maybe. It's kind of a spaceship. It can fly through space. Yeah, I give her points for originality. Yep. I mean, it's it's all about twisting the question, right? Till you get what you want. Ooh, so here's another one. If you could have any one magic item, what would you take? Dang. Excluding any item that gives you wishes or miracles or other... I get more wishes kind of thing. Gotta admit, dang. Ring of Sustenance is a really, really good choice. Yeah, I was thinking Horn of Plenty. Well, nice thing about Ring of Sustenance, depending on edition, it also meant you only had to sleep two hours a night. Like, I want it just for that. A ring that means I only have to sleep two hours a night? That's incredibly useful. Although a new 5e staff of healing would be pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, healing items really fix a lot of problems with the world as we have it today. Frankly, I'd settle for a potion of cure disease. Yep. Sometimes it doesn't have to be uh, the best. Bag of holding would be fun just to have. Yeah, that's true. Uh, A potion of heal, because that would cure all my diseases. I wonder if that would include, like, tooth problems. Actually, man, do clerics keep, like, does cure wounds deal with tooth problems? Um, Well, I think you've uh, butted up against the edge of the simulation. With regards to uh, tooth problems, uh, there's no there's no rules for teeth. That's true. I just assume everybody in D and D has perfect teeth, especially the barbarians. <laughs> oh, so here's a really fun one. I ask everybody: you can cast one D and D spell at will with no material components. You cannot choose wish, miracle, summon monster, or like shadow. You can't choose the cheaty ones. Plant growth. You're the first person I've ever heard that chose plant growth, but that's a really cool... Yeah, actually, I'm with Dark uh, Dark Myth Battler. I take prestidigitation. I mean, there's a lot of good questions, but like for me, prestidigitation is the ultimate. One, I can clean the entire house in like 10 minutes, and it's perfectly clean. I don't have to do laundry. I don't have to do dishes. Technically, I don't even have to take a shower anymore. Also, my beer is always cold. My soup is always hot. And if I put the remote away from my hand, I can teleport it to my hand. Text chat is positing teleport. I like that idea too. A teleport without air is another really good one. My wife and I actually figured out if we both got a spell, one of us takes tongues and the other one takes teleport without air. Tongues is another great one. Never not understand anything again. You'd make the ultimate translator. It might mean the end of the world though. What, Tongues? Well, you know, people are going to accuse you of mistranslating. Hmm. 
because it would expose the fact that they've been purposefully mistranslating other conversations previously. Uh, part of me wants polymorph any object. Oh, the letter of a DM uh, suggested that one, and it, yeah, always have whatever tool you need. That's uh, that's got some pluses. Well, and the other thing is that spell also lets you change people, and if you stay like in the same exact category, the duration is permanent. Actually, I had a setting where I set it up that it was a post-scarcity utopian D&D setting. So any deviants were required to put on the helm of opposite alignment. So everybody was good aligned, or at least neutral. Um, when you were 16, you sat on a throne that had a permanent polymorph any object that transferred you into yourself only with all 18 stats. Every temple had, when you walked in, you got hit with a heel. Oh my god, Tiffany. I am so disappointed I didn't think of that. Yeah, it's totally Eclipse Mage. That's an awesome name for that. Uh, any more questions, people? We missed a couple earlier. Oh, did we? What, what were they? Nathan asks, how do you handle characters that are famous or well-known in the game? Well, I think it depends. Are they PCs or NPCs? I think the assumption is that it's PCs who are uh, have uh, rabid fandoms. Well, you want to kind of play into it, so I'll throw, like, fawning fans every once in a while. Maybe give them advantage on a couple of uh, social roles here and there. Right, and there are disadvantages to being famous or well-known, because if you need to target somebody, you know, say there's a, a group of narrative wells out there, they're, they're going to go after the rich boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's that double-edged sword where you're going to kind of get targeted by spells first. On the other side, they might not kill you. They might just try to capture you and ransom you. Oh, wow. So, Digmammon asked, what is the most interesting group you have ever created for a game? What about you, Eric? What do you got? Uh, let's see. Well, I created something called the Realms Walkers, which were a bunch of moderate-level adventurers whose job it was to, self-proclaimed job, was to, to keep the road, the high road between the capital city and the uh, outlying territory safe. That was a that was a fun little uh, little uh, institution because they you know, we got to create the whole uh, you know hidden camp in the woods and recruiting rangers and training them and yeah it, it got to be a thing. So that was fun. I think I've done a lot of interesting things for Dresden Files, but one of them was a sort of antagonist, sort of protagonist called the uh, the Rag and Bones. The Rag and Bones were a bunch of discarded folk from society, so you're homeless, or runaways, and all that, who had died, but they'd each been brought back by a ghost related to their death. And now they kind of lived on the edges of society, and they ate ghosts. But when they ate ghosts, they also kind of spawned wraiths, which were like evil ghosts. So they're they kind of a problem, but they weren't exactly bad guys. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, I think we've got time for maybe one or two more. Uh, Tiffany Corda asks, what about handling NPCs that players would know very well? Well, that's that's a little easier to handle, I think, because while they know them very well, their options for, you know, they're, they're probably known very well by a lot of people, and so the options for interaction are relatively limited. They don't have probably a lot of time to go dedicate to this PC and their particular adventures or uh, intrigues. It's it's kind of a sliding scale. The more influence they have, the more the PCs would want to interact with them, and the less time they actually have to make that interaction happen. They could probably spend all day talking with their friend, the local blacksmith, who makes them their armor, but that's not really going to gain them much. Generally, I handle most famous PCs by killing them off. Holding them for ransom's good, too. Uh, that's true. Uh, like, in my realms, Elminster's dead. Dritz is dead. Pretty much anybody mentioned in any novel is dead. Hey, man, true resurrection can solve a lot of problems. Yeah, my characters don't care. Well, except for the famous bad guys. Those live because they're fun to kill. All right, I guess we'll finish up with uh, Valetta Vadim asked, Who is best pony? Tony the pony. I'm going to go with pony keg. Pony keg is best pony. You've obviously asked that question of the wrong two guys. Nope, best pony is pony keg because pony keg has beer. And Tony the pony is... <laughs> is is awesome. So that's that. Uh, that was Stallone's original name, right? Do I have that right? Of oh, the Italian stallion. Ah, uh, oh, Artan Artax was pretty cool. I liked Artax. 
All right, I think that is going to wrap up the Q&A, in which case we're going onward. Before we wrap up for the evening, I'd like to take just a moment to remind everyone that this episode of Weaving Myths is made possible by our Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of Nathan's latest novel. We also do special bonus content for our patrons, such as Weaving Myths does Tabletop. The first two episodes of that are available on Twitch, and the third episode will be coming soon. Contributions start as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you all to check it out at patreon.com slash One last thing I should note, We Miss is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge. Thank everyone so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all the comments and questions from the text chat as always. I'm Ruben, and I've been joined by the magnificent Mordai. That's Eric to everyone now, for those of you keeping score at home. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.